Hey lady, it's Dr. Dom here. If you like this show and you want to make your own, let me tell you about the free platform Anchor. It's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. You can add songs from Spotify and create any type of content that you are looking for. Anchor will distribute it all for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, lady, if you're looking for an extra dose of that behind-the-scenes content Terry and I put out after every episode, go to herspacepodcast.com, click Wisdom Wednesdays with Terry, and you will be taken to our Patreon page where, for a limited time, you will have free access to our content. We hope you check it out and become a subscriber. And I think that honestly, even if I had done more research on like specifically microeconomics, mm-hmm. I still wouldn't have known. Like that feels so foreign to me. Yes. However, again, it goes back to what you were saying. The way she explained it, like I understood the points, right? Yes. Like the areas that she spoke about resonated so you're talking about health issues like health gap you're talking about seeking prescriptions and participating in pharmaceutical trials like those things like okay i know that i know what that is Mm -hmm. yeah but thinking about it from an economic standpoint is not something that i necessarily would automatically do welcome to her space a podcast dedicated to uplifting women like you. We're your hosts, Dr. Dominique Broussard, a college professor and psychologist, and Terry Lomax, a techie and motivational speaker. In a world where Black women are often misrepresented and misunderstood, please join us as we initiate authentic conversations on everything from fibroids to fake friends and create a safe space where Black women can just be. Hey lady, it's Dr. Dom here from the HerSpace podcast. Do you have a burning question you're dying to get feedback on? Do you want an unbiased perspective on a situation you're facing? If so, visit herspacepodcast.com and click Ask Dr. Dom under the Start Here option. Every Tuesday, I'll choose a few questions and answer them at random. Hey lady, really quick, just wanted to let you know before we jump into the episode that the audio in this episode is not the best. The internet connection was not trying to let us be great and our guest is a little low on some parts throughout the interview, but we didn't want to scrap it because the content is still really good and we had a lot of fun recording it. So I hope that you can still get something out of this episode. Let's jump in. All right, ladies, we have a very special guest here in her space today. Super excited about this topic today, something that is definitely timely for our community. So let's jump on in. Brittany Wilcher is a PhD candidate in economics at American University. She's an applied microeconomist with interests in labor, health, and gender economics. Prior to her doctoral studies, Brittany completed a BA in economics at Spelman College and Master of Science in International Healthcare Management, Economics, and Policy from SDA Bocconi School of Management in Milan, Italy. 
Brittany, welcome to Her Space. Hey, ladies. We're hey. so happy to have you here. Thank you for the warm welcome and the kind introduction. Of course, we are just so excited to dive into this conversation. And so I am going to get the conversation started with our quote of the day. A race that is solely dependent upon another for economic existence sooner or later dies. As we have in the past been living upon the mercy shown by others and by the chances obtainable and have suffered therefrom, so we will in the future suffer if an effort is not made now to adjust our own affairs. And that quote comes to us from Marcus Garvey, Brittany. When you hear that quote, what comes up for you? Like, what were some of the immediate thoughts that you had when you heard that statement? I think that it's time that we concentrate on building our own. Kind of as our ancestors did in the past, that there are unfortunate structures in which this country was designed under. And we can keep fighting those structures. But as we fight those structures, I think it's imperative that we begin to concentrate on building our own sort of economic independence, working as a collective community, kind of going back to the things that I think are endogenous to our heritage. In this case, women of African descent. Um, and I imagine across many communities of color. And with that, Brittany, I feel like we should just dive right in. Dom and I, before our conversation and prep for this interview, we were both like, this is a topic that we're interested in, but it's not our area of expertise. So we are going to really lean into curiosity today and have lots of questions for you based on your work, research, credentials, and just like the amazing experiences that you've had. So we're going to start very basic. And and if you can just tell us what is a microeconomist? What is that? <laughs> sure, sure. So I think a lot of times when people think about economics, they think about macroeconomics. So kind of what's going on with the broader economy. You hear about interest rates. You hear about overall GDP, productivity, and growth. And so a microeconomist focuses on the smallest sort of unit possible. Us as individuals, firms, how do we behave? How do we allocate as a firm, maybe scarce resources? What is our profit sort of maximizing behavior? And when we think about micro, we can think about literally like smaller markets, right? We can think about kind of a market that's interesting to me is the healthcare market. But we can also think about education, right? That's also a type of market where resources are allocated among students in certain communities, right? We can also think about kind of one that's obvious, the housing market, right? And so the microeconomist thinks about behaviors of individuals and firms in these sort of smaller markets. That's super helpful. And my hunch is that many of us are a lot more familiar with economics if we run a household, especially microeconomics. If we run a household because of, I think about like budgeting and allocating your resources and just prioritizing like where money goes in the household. So I guess if you can just tell us like, What prompted you to choose this career? Yeah, sure. So I think relatively young age when I was in junior high, my grandmother actually had a massive stroke and my family's from 
Louisiana, my mom's side of the family. So I remember my mom rushing to get me from school. And basically, we all jetted off, my parents, my sister, to Louisiana to see about my grandmother who had this massive stroke. And it was kind of peculiar to us because to our knowledge, she had no sort of pre-existing health conditions, right? She went in for checkups, she walked, did all the things that you would expect someone to do, uh, although, you know, she was aging. And come to find out, uh, we ultimately ended up bringing my grandmother back to California, where I grew up, and, and to physicians here so that my mom and other family members that we have here could help kind of nurse her back to recovery. And physicians here actually noted that Hey, this was something that actually could have been prevented, right? She was, she had to have been displaying some sort of symptoms prior to this time. And so that got me to thinking, well, after being upset, right, that this is something that should have been caught. It got me to thinking about how different care is, healthcare in particular, might be depending on what region of the world that you're in. It also got me to thinking about the extent to which maybe her gender and her race may have played a role in the type of treatment that she was getting. And maybe the fact that she didn't have advocates there as she was going to the doctor, right? So all of these things got me kind of riled up and passionate about really trying to understand what's going on in this healthcare market. What is going on in terms of physician behavior? What are they optimizing off of, right? What are their incentives to keep certain patients healthy and maybe unfortunately letting other patients kind of go by the wayside, right? And so all of these things at my sort of young age, I might have not had the words to verbalize, but this is kind of what inspired me to go on to pursue a PhD in economics with this emphasis in health, with this lens of gender, because I really wanted to be able to speak to and understand what is going on in terms of health disparities that we observe in our country. Oh, okay. So there's multiple places where we can go with this, right? Oh my gosh. Like, yeah. Okay. I need to slow my mind down because there are so many questions that now I have just based off of that little bit of information. But the one that like immediately comes to mind when thinking about where we are in this current place and time is the health disparities related to this current pandemic. And so I guess what I'm asking is, what is your exposure in terms of understanding and researching what the economics are behind the health disparities related to COVID-19? That's a great, great question. Very relevant, very timely. I not focus currently on looking at COVID-19, but just have some own speculations just based off of kind of the stats that we hear thrown out there, kind of hearing what other economists are talking about. And I think that there are a couple things that are really precipitating the disparities that we're observing within communities of color. And I think, unfortunately, racism in this country is really affecting our health the stress that people of color endure. And so I think as a result, what we observe due to whether it's race and these other sort of markets that we talked about in the labor market, not having access to sufficient high quality food, all all of these things, maybe just literally the stress of being black in the workplace. 
is resulting in basically what we're seeing in the Black community is a lot of people having more conditions that are what they refer to as underlying conditions that make you have a higher risk for being susceptible to COVID-19, right? So if underlying as a community, we have higher rates of heart disease, higher rates of asthma, right? These underlying conditions, which are precipitated by all these unfortunate sort of socioeconomic conditions can make one more susceptible. In addition, I think what we're seeing is also that a number of Black workers are the frontline workers, right? And so they're not benefiting necessarily from being able to work from home, like many of these other workers that were able to just transition laptop. I mean, even myself still go about business as usual from home. So if we have these higher rates of these risk factors for COVID-19 and we're on the front lines and on top of that, we know that there is unfortunately perceptions about how Black people experience pain. So when they're going to the doctor, this might lead to sort of differential treatment in terms of who's believed and who's not believed and how they're treated. We have this sort of unfortunate perfect storm of what I perceive are these devastating racial and ethnic disparities that we're observing for COVID-19. But again, my disclaimer is this is not my area of research, but this is these are factors that I suspect are precipitating and driving the numbers that we're currently observing. I love the way you broke that down, Brittany, because I think that in the media, the way that it's portrayed, and we know the media is, can be very problematic, right? I think the way that it's portrayed, it's like, oh, Black people are unhealthy and they just eat this stuff and they do these things. This is why COVID-19 is attacking their community at a, you know, at a larger rate. And it's like, uh, or we really peel back the layers. I think you did a great job of articulating exactly why that might play out in that way. Now, I want to read something in your bio that intrigued me. Tom and I were like, oh, wow, this is fancy. Like what's going on here? So basically what it says is you employ quasi-experimental designs to draw inferences about the quality of pharmaceutical innovation and labor market effects of healthcare access for women and other underrepresented groups. What does that mean, Brittany? What is this? This sounds amazing. (laughs) Well, I'll do my best to try to simplify that, right? So I think the idea is a lot of times you can find what we refer to as like correlations in data, right? Like kind of what you were describing is actually a really good example. Like, oh, Black people are eating this unhealthy food or they have these unhealthy behaviors. And so that's why they're getting COVID-19, right? And that might not necessarily mean that um, A is causing And so when I think of causal inference, what I think of it is this idea of really trying to treat your data analysis like as if it was an actual experiment in a lab, like in chemistry or physics, where you're literally able to just say changing one factor, right, holding all else constant. We observe this relationship between, let's say, um, maybe some policy change such as paid family leave and women's behavior in terms of their attachment to the labor market. So them continuing to work in jobs, right? We want to be able to disentangle whether it is like that policy that's actually precipitating that behavior. Because there could be a whole lot of other reasons why a woman is staying attached to the the labor market in that policy specifically. And so 
what causal inference allows us to do is it allows us to basically say that X causes Y. Hopefully that was a sufficient explanation. Yes, that was a really good explanation. And again, I'm like, oh, ooh, questions, right? Because the example that you gave talked about family leave policies and women in the labor market. And so, so what I'm curious about is, I think I keep coming back to this, this pandemic. And I know that that's not the area that you're studying, but just thinking about leave in general, like family leave in general. And if you have someone, like if we go back to the example that you gave with like the story that you shared about your grandmother, right? And initially the family had to go to Louisiana to be physically there with her before you all were able to bring her back to California. And so what I think about there is how many families are not able to do that because they don't have that type of lead, right? They're in a job where they're basically told if you take time off to go and take care of your sick child or your sick spouse or your sick parent, then you're out of a job. And how many of us, how many people are put in that predicament? And then the domino effect that having to make that decision causes. Right. It's, I think, a terrible position to be in, which is why I think it's very important that we have some sort of national aid family leave policy. And so I think one thing that we do see, well, in terms of that particular research, is that unfortunately women of color in general tend to be aggregated in these industries where they might not necessarily have access to paid family leave, as you were talking about. So they are unable to maybe take specific time off, you know, with a new birth. If they do, right, it's like, will I have a job to come back to? And so I think, and I hope that particularly with what's going on with this pandemic, that there is a more robust conversation around how we are really integrating our mothers into this sort of labor market. I mean, like, I think we've seen with COVID-19 in particular that what I've seen in my research, this sort of dual burden that mothers in particular face in terms of caring for their household, right? So what do I mean by that? I mean that literally a woman who's a mother has like a double work day. So she's working two times more hours than, let's say, the, a male father. And what that means is with this increase or influx of women entering the workforce, like the since like the 60s, right? What we're seeing is that the time that they're spending on unpaid sort of care, so things around the household, all of that, that time hasn't changed. So they're literally, they have a, a double workday and a double burden. And so what does that mean with COVID-19 and children no longer being able to physically go into school? How is a mother going to be able to manage being the teacher, being 
the, the maid being the chef, along with maybe potentially, depending on where she's employed, cuts in her pay or salary, or maybe for some people who aren't on salary jobs, having to make the decision between caring for their child and no longer having a source of employment. So I think that hopefully what I, I am optimistic about is that COVID is actually illuminating a lot of sort of disparities that I think were obvious to certain communities in particular. And that we, I think like now is a time to sort of reboot and readjust, recalibrate and think about how are we going to tackle these things from policy sort of framework? Because these problems always existed, but people were not necessarily affected on this massive sort of scale. And I think since your podcast targets Black women, women of color in particular, it's important for us, and particularly because I, you guys may be aware that Black women are 70% of households, they are the breadwinner or the co-breadwinner, meaning they bring in at least 25% of the income. So this could have devastating effects when we're not considering some of the consequences of the pandemic on our community in particular. Wow, that is super deep, Brittany. And it makes me think about this article that I read from Market Watch. And just to read this data, it was just like, wow. It says by one estimate, the typical white family has wealth of $171,000 annually. And that's 10 times greater than $17,150 for an average Black family. And just to think about a family living on that amount of money and that income gap, and the stark divide between how much capital white people and black people control. I think many of us know the answer to this, but I'd love to hear you break it down as someone that's, you know, in economics. What has caused this massive wealth gap for black people? Oh, wow, that's a great question. I think in general, when we're thinking about the wealth gap, I'm thinking about lack of access to capital. I'm like, we had no we had no boots, <laughs> no bootstraps oh, for ourselves. <laughs> so I, I'm thinking about, there's a very interesting paper, actually. I'm digressing, but this might be worth someone that you want to reach out to, that Dr. Lisa wrote about. She's an economist, kind of post-reconstruction era. We saw kind of this uptick in Black innovators. So like with the, the number of patents, I think it's gotten a lot of press more recently. And then you see with things like Rosewood, or actually around the, the Spanish flu, that pandemic, which coincided with a lot of racial violence against, unfortunately, Black people, you see like this, this really stark decline in Black inventors. So I, that just makes me think about the whole, we just didn't have the space or the safety to be able to innovate. But I think in terms of the Black-white wealth gap, I think, again, we didn't necessarily have the boots. I think we were left out of many of America's historic stimulus sort of packages. Um, I think in general, when you think about the types of occupations that we work in, when we think about the black-white pay gap, right? When we think about even today, if an education is a gateway to mobility and access to certain careers, which communities have to take out debt in order to access that education, 
right? Because well, even now, in order to buy a house, I think now they're considering how much student debt you have. So I think it's a litany of things in, in addition to the history of redlining, right? So a lot of people, other communities were able to build wealth in terms of property that their family owned, who had access to those properties, who determined what those properties were worth. I think in this, I mean, I find it personally interesting when you think about even like in the Los Angeles area, you have historically black neighborhoods like Baldwin Hills, things of that nature, where you still have really nice homes, wealthy families. Uh, But I sometimes wonder why those homes might be worth a little bit less the same sort of home than homes that appear in other areas where it has a different demographic breakdown. So if we weren't able to build wealth in the same way that other communities were able to because of structural design, if we weren't able to have access to the same sort of occupations at the same sort of pay, if we're now playing catch up by pursuing the education that we need to get into these spaces. But once we're in these spaces, we're not paid the same way. Once we're in these spaces, we might not have the same level of security. So I think a lot of these things precipitated this wealth gap that we observe today. I think that you are sharing with us, like breaking it down for us in ways that we kind of, I think on a gut level, understand or know, but you're breaking it down for us in a way that's like connecting these dots and giving us the language to speak about what we, like I said, on a gut level, know. And so I thank you for that. And so when you think about Black women and like you mentioned, this wealth gap that we experience all of the health disparities that we experience. And again, you know, all of this is tied to racism and white supremacy, right? But from an economic standpoint, what are the things that you wish we knew as Black women to help us understand and maybe attack some of these systems? Yeah, I think, I mean, if we just like break it down by spaces, I think if we're just speaking about health in general, I think it's important for us to begin to have the language to advocate or have an advocate in that space. And this is just not purely from an economist perspective, but I think in the health space, I think it's very important to be able to advocate. I also think in terms of what we refer to as human capital investment, which is just a fancy way of saying, how are we investing in our education, our training, all of that? I think what we're seeing in terms of Black women kind of being a part of this frontline workers is that we're concentrated in certain industries, right? And so I think it it sounds like a luxury, but I think it's important to begin investing in different types of training basically retooling ourselves for the jobs of the future, right? And so what does that mean? To me, it means thinking about how can I be prepared for fields that might be less affected by automation, maybe getting into spaces like data science, right? So taking advantage of maybe these free boot camps that teach you how to program, right? We want to make sure, kind of like in Hidden Figures, 
which had one of the characters that was played by Octavia Spencer. You'll remember if you've seen Hidden Figures, there's a scene that I love where she basically steals a book. Well, she doesn't really steal it because it's literally from the public library and begins training her team on how to code so that she could bring them all up with her. And so I think it's important. I don't know if we need to start like building some sort of collective. This might exist, but we need to begin investing in our own training, going back to like <laughs> taking back our power to the extent that we can and training ourselves for the jobs of the future. I think so that we're not just aggregated in these spaces that are so temperamental based upon how the economy ebbs and flows. And I know it's it's easier sort of said than done because then you have that barrier of trying to get jobs in these spaces which require a network, right? And so I think when I'm thinking about both kind of these investing our own human capital, advocating for yourself in the health space, I also think that there's just like a lot to be done policy-wise. Like there's just some stuff that it's, it's not, on, it's not on uses. Like it's just not on us. Right. But it's on us to begin, I think, advocating and the way that we've seen people rise up now to push back on policymakers, hold them accountable for things like paid family, things that we know work, right? Like having access to paid family leave. Like there's plenty of evidence for that. Having access to solid childcare really establishing best practices to make sure that everyone has equitable sort of access to healthcare, right? So it's it's time for us to really also push back on the government and give us give them the list of sort of demands, recommendations, or, you know, like you and I, kind of in these research spaces, really pushing back against the government, like, hey, this is evidence. This is evidence to show that this policy has XYZ effect and can encourage XYZ type of behavior. So I think while some of the onus, I think we can do what we can as Black women to retool, to advocate. I think at the same time, we continue to push back and let the government who works for us know what we need. That's beautiful. That is such beautiful advice. And I love that feedback about looking at those careers that cannot or will be less likely to be automated. I feel like back when I was in school and we talked about careers, there always sort of seemed to be this, I don't know, it seems like the people that were in my network, they seem to gravitate toward the same types of careers. Like, so Black people in general, I don't know if we were just shown certain careers. And so we didn't think about, oh, I can be a biologist or like a food scientist, you know, or a data scientist. I don't think those were careers that like came to mind for many of us. So I love that feedback. And it's something that's great that we can share with our children as well, sort of cultivating those gifts. So thank you for that, Brittany. I guess the next question would be around generational wealth. Do you have any, any like pro tips or any advice on how, you know, black people, black women can, can sort of create generational wealth for their families? Oh, wow. That's a good question. So I think it's interesting. I think a lot of times people hear economists and they see it as something that's synonymous with finance. And so I, yeah, I'll be honest in terms of, I guess, building wealth, I'm less knowledgeable about just from what, what I do. But I think just priors that I have in terms of building generational wealth and I think actually touching back upon what we as Black women do now to better ourselves, I think, is really investing in understanding personal finance, talking about it in our community. I think generally 
that may not be something that every family actually talks about. And I think in some ways, maybe it's because you don't want to be a burden, right? Like, I don't know, I, I imagine within Black families or families of color, right, there's maybe different cultural norms around it. Maybe some see it as, hey, we pull everything. Others see, like, let me hold my own weight because I don't want to put it on sibling X or grandmother X, right? So I think whatever your narrative is, I think it's important to just begin seeking out information about personal finance, about really things. I think what we've realized in COVID is life is precious. So understanding estate planning, understanding life insurance and how that's different than maybe disability insurance, what might work work for you, right? I think also when we're talking about these, going back to these investments in human capital that we're encouraging among our children, I'm thinking about, do I need to send my child to the school that while it may be a great school, will end up resulting in them amassing tons of debt, right? Could they achieve the same goal at another school that's maybe a state school that has really solid programs and then go on to a graduate program at that set, like prestigious quote unquote school, right? So just thinking about the ways in which we're strategically sort of making investments. I don't know if there are, if you are able to build a community where you're actually able to come together and invest in things. And not just stocks, but maybe come together in your local community, find a group of people and really invest in your own community. Maybe actually us being the ones to begin to revitalize our own communities, to go in and buy property, make it nice, (laughs) make it somewhere that we would want our kids to play, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of thoughts that I have in terms of building generational wealth and I guess just an individual sort of perspective than to the broader family unit and then to us as like a community as large. I will say, Brittany, one, thank you so much for that guidance and that answer. I have not really studied microeconomics since undergrad. And so as we ask these questions, I love how you were very honest with like, um, this isn't really my expertise, but you did such a great job, like sort of leading us and guiding us and sharing what you could about these topics based on your thoughts and your assumptions and your research and all that good stuff. So thank you so much for bearing with us (laughs) as we are like, this is a new topic for us. We just want to dive into these various (laughs) subtopics. So I guess for us, it'd be nice to know, like, what topic can you talk about all day or what topic is closely related to the research that excites you most? Yeah. So right now, I think with this dissertation, any of those topics I could go on and on about, right? So I'm thinking about right now, a lot of stuff that just happens to be relevant to the news. So thinking about the representation of women in clinical trials and what that means for population sort of outcomes in terms of the types of new pharmaceutical innovations that we see on the market. So when we have a pool of people in a clinical trial that are more representative of potentially like the end user, do we actually see innovation that's high quality is measured in the sense of it not presenting a lot of adverse sort of drug reactions. I've been doing some work, as you might be able to tell, thinking about aid family as well, how that's affected mothers sort of long run labor market 
sort of behavior and what we refer to as attachment. They're continuing to stay employed. Um, looking at use cases in states like California, New Jersey, also thinking about um, really how recessions, in particular the Great Recession, affected um, maternal health in general and how our policies around child care and child subsidies, the extent to which those can offset, offset some of the potential adverse implications that a recession might have on maternal health. I can also talk to you about Lovecraft Country or all of these other things. Yes, oh my God. If you'd like our our verses. (laughs) I've really been enjoying that during the quarantine or the social sort of isolation period. But yeah, those are things that I'm definitely enjoying learning more about and really diving into the space. I'm excited that I, I really feel like it's relevant to the current discussions. And so it's exciting to do work that's um, <laughs> could potentially be able to speak to national conversation around national policy. I have a quick follow-up question, right? So when you were talking about participating in pharmaceutical trials, one of the things that comes up for me all the time in terms of participating in research, right? So I get it. Being in academia, like I get it. I get the need to participate in research and to have representation in the work. But I also know the historical narrative and how many times we as Black folks have been mistreated and killed for the advancement of science. Because I do hear what you're saying about the importance of that representation, right? What would you say to Black women who get that call for participating in this clinical trial? And or what would you say to those people who are conducting clinical trials and really want to recruit Black women? I know that's a two-part question. No, it's fine. Come with the fire. So I think it's a very important question. And actually, what precipitated my interest in this area of trials was the Tuskegee experiment that you have just referenced. And so I think this is why I personally opted to focus on sex. So thinking about women versus men in particular, because there are explicit sort of biological differences as it relates to affecting how we might metabolize medication differently than men. So what I mean is when we think of like on just physiological level, we're talking about hormones, we're talking about literally different sort of BMI, body composition, right? This can all affect how we are processing a medication. And so with that, I think it's important to be able to observe that sort of variation at like the clinical trial phase so that you really understand or have a, a, a stronger sense of how this might play out at the population level. And I can definitely understand the trepidation of a Black person in terms of their willingness to want to participate in a trial, which is why, I mean, maybe this is slightly different than the narrative I actually recently saw. Um, Two sort of representatives of HBCU medical schools um, encouraging Black people to participate. And I think from my perspective, 
I'm a little leery when I think about encouraging participation along the dimensions of race. While I am aware that there's kind of this argument for epigenetics and this idea that basically stress, essentially like the stress of being black can literally change the genes in which we, the way in which we process things. I think I'm more comfortable with a conversation around making sure that we get people in trials if we're not talking about along the dimensions of gender, people in trials that represent different underlying risk factors or diseases, right? So I would feel more comfortable for like, we need to have, make sure that we're including people with sickle cell, right? Which might disproportionately, of course, affect Black people. We're including people with heart disease, right? So we're including people based upon the conditions rather than having this conversation around specific race, which I think can make people a little bit theory and apprehensive, which I totally understand. And I think that's kind of where my thoughts around that differ than maybe how other people may have sold it. So just to me, I, I think that the conversation should, just to clarify, be around making sure we represent people with certain underlying risk factors and certain diseases. And I think it's important too, if we're going to have if this is going to precipitate more people of color being in these trials, more black women, for example, being in these trials, then we need to make sure that we have the people running the trials reflect the communities that they're serving. Because I think that, or either be sensitive to the communities that they're serving, right? So you don't necessarily have to be a black woman to be an advocate for the rights of black women, but we just want to make sure that everyone in there is on the same page in terms of the underlying sort of mission so they can be sensitive and they have the ability to communicate that everyone has as much full information to the extent which is possible about what they are getting into. And so I guess to the woman that is apprehensive, I would want her to consider participation, I guess, from the perspective of making sure that someone perhaps with her underlying conditions is represented in this trial such that when this goes to the market, when this is rolled out in the masses, that we know, hopefully, uh, that this is going to play out well among those populations that may have sickle cell, that may have heart disease, that may have diabetes, right? And I think when you're talking around conditions, it, to me, doesn't necessarily mean just black because other people can have diabetes, right? Other people can have heart disease, but we still want to understand how the drug interacts with maybe people with those sort of compound conditions. I love that you shared that. And I love that you asked that question, Dom. It makes me think about in the news and how they were saying, we need more black people to test this vaccine out on. And I'm like, Oh, absolutely. I will not be signing up for that. Like, of course, because of our current government and everything that's kind of going on there. But I love the way you said you'd prefer not to focus on race per se, but more so different, you know, biological makeups or, you know, different health concerns or things of that nature. So we're going to switch up the energy of our interview. And Brittany, because we recognize, appreciate, and celebrate the multifaceted woman, and we believe that it's okay to be classy and ratchet and you can still be elegant and dance to strip club music if you so choose, we want to invite you to the OU Clatchet. Yes, OU Clatchet segment. So, Brittany, do you take on the challenge? I do. I think I will. 
I love that response. Yes. <laughs> I love it. And so, okay, we're going to ease you into it. So the first question, you mentioned this earlier, that part of what you've been doing during the quarantine time is listening to versus battles. So out of all of the versus battles that you've heard so far, which one was your favorite? Oh, you already know Auntie Patty and Auntie Gladys. I said they should stop. There should be no more. I, d- I don't understand where they're going to go. Can we just all agree? We all agree. And like it was we healing. Can agree. It was healing for the world. It really was. I love it. I love it. So, Brittany, let's see. Our next question for you is, if you had to choose, let's say you're on the dance floor and... One of your favorite songs comes on. Are you going to twerk or two-step? Okay. This is situational. (laughs) Am I at a family event? That's a good point. I'm with you. Let's say you're at the club. No family. Well, if my family is listening to this, I will two-step. I love it. We're going to stick with the two-step. Wink, wink. (laughs) We got you, Brittany. Okay, so since you're going to two-step, what song would get you to the dance floor to two-step? Oh my gosh, before I let go? Well, I, I mean, I guess that the party is over, but I mean, before it started, I just, uh, it's many things, right? Yes, exactly. Because the party started, it shuts it down. It's everything. That is a good one. That is a good one. And what about... When you think about your legacy and the work that you're doing currently, how do you want to be remembered? I think as someone who's there to dream. And one thing that I wanted to actually mention when we were discussing earlier is that there is just unfortunately a lack of representation of Black women in econ. When I say a lack, like less than 0.5% of PhDs, I think in 2018 were awarded to Black women. And I think that the field is just so powerful because who do we see on the face? Like once COVID hit, who do we see behind the design of policy? And so I think I just want to be remembered as someone who dared to dream and be in a space where I just wanted to represent us as Black women and to be able to not just give a voice to us, but give a a voice to those who may not be in the room. So just offering an alternative perspective. And I think it's critical to have an alternative perspective when you're shaping policy for a a very diverse U.S. population. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Brittany, for joining us today in her space. I hope that our listeners are really taking in the perspective that you've shared and that hopefully some of our listeners will hear it and look you up and share your information with their daughters so that their daughters can say, hey, I want to pursue a career in economics so that we're not having only 0.5% with PhDs in economics. So thank you. Thank you again for being here with us and 
shedding light on an area that a lot of us are exposed to, but don't necessarily know about, right? So for our listeners out there that want to look you up and connect with you because maybe they have more questions to ask, where can they find you? So you can find me on Twitter at Brittany Wilcher, Brittany with an I, B-R-I-T-N-I-W-I-L-C-H-E-R. Again, you can find me on Twitter at Brittany Wilcher, Brittany with an I. Thank you so much, Brittany. We appreciate you. Yes. And we're happy that we were able to have you in her space. Hey, lady, it's Terry here from the Her Space podcast. And I have a question for you. Do you want to start your own podcast? Have you been thinking to yourself, you know what? I want to start a podcast, but you just haven't taken the leap. If that's you, I got you. I'm hosting a free podcasting masterclass where I'm going to teach you how to create your own podcast from start to finish. So visit terrylomax.com and click on the pink link in the middle of your screen and register for my free podcasting masterclass. Today's episode is sure to provide you with motivation, inspiration, or even a fresh perspective. If you have any aha moments or if you feel comforted throughout the episode, lady, please leave us a review and tell us what we're doing right so we can stay on track. Also, we release episodes every Friday, so be sure to subscribe on iTunes and visit herspacepodcast.com and enter your email address to get updates about our live events and all of the new beginnings that we have for this year. Thanks for joining us today in Her Space. Please note that our show may contain conversations about self-help, advice, self-empowerment, and mental health, but it is by no means meant to be a substitute for an ongoing formal relationship with a trained mental health provider. If you or someone you know is in need of mental health care, please visit the Therapy for Black Girls directory, Psychology Today, or contact your insurance provider. If you liked what you heard and want to keep the conversation going, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HerSpacePodcast, or check out our website at HerSpacePodcast.com. And before we meet again, repeat after me. Although my plans may change, I will stay committed to my purpose. We'll see you next week, lady.